Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. And stand for the reading of the scripture. Today I'm in Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll read the first six verses of Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end.
I know you've been waiting to hear me say it. Galatians 1. Let's turn there. We're going to start by reading the whole chapter, and then we will go back and dig into the details. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, And I stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. 
Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. I've learned the hard way, and it's been reminded to me the last couple of weeks, that I can't take anything for granted. It would be easy to assume that you understand what Paul is referring to here, and that you all just know the history of Paul, how he was converted to Christianity, but rather than assume it, knowing that we have new listeners, knowing that we have new folks here at GCA, knowing that not everybody knows everything, we're going to go back and read it. So let's turn to the book of Acts. Keep a bookmark there in Galatians. Turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Three times in the book of Acts, Paul recites this story. This story is so important to him, it is foundational to him being able to call himself an apostle. He starts the letter of Galatians by referring to himself as Paul, an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. The word apostle is just a transliteration into the English of that Greek word. The Greek word's not complicated. It means a sent person, a sent one. Anybody could have an apostle. If I sent Micah in the back to get some water, he was a sent one because I sent him. And I could say, Micah's my apostle. And I'd, I'd be technically right according to the word. But in order to be an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, there are certain parameters, certain prerequisites. And those prerequisites are that you heard him during his earthly ministry so that you were taught directly by him. And then secondly, that you were sent directly by him because you had seen him resurrected in the flesh. If you didn't have those qualifications, you could not call yourself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't with Jesus during the three and a half years of his ministry. He did see the resurrected Christ, and he was sent by Christ, but that's why in so many Pauline epistles, he has to argue in favor of his own apostleship. Because you can see why people would say, wait a minute, you're not an apostle. You're not one of the original 12. And so he recounts this story three times in the book of Acts, in order to say, this is how I became a sent one of Jesus Christ. And as you just heard out of the book of Galatians, he was so sure, so confident of being sent by Jesus Christ that he said, I did not immediately go up to Jerusalem and confer with the other apostles. I was three years before I went to Jerusalem, and in fact, the churches among the Jewish believers didn't even know me by face. That's how long I was gone. Well, here's what actually happened to him. He had just been party to the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, an apostle of Jesus, 
is the first martyr that we read about in the book of Acts. And Paul was consenting to the death of Stephen and was even holding the cloaks for all the folks, apparently so they could throw rocks better. And then he was given a directive from the Jews in Jerusalem, given the power and the authority to go out and persecute the church, find everybody who was of the way. And so he, by this authority, having a writ of authority, went out to find everybody who was adhering to this new religion of Jesus Christ, which was undermining Judaism, and he was persecuting them, bringing them back to Jerusalem so that they could be killed. And so that starts chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Now Shaul, we know him as Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, He was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a really interesting moment, because Saul was technically not persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church that belonged to Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. That's who he was persecuting. But Jesus took it so personally that he said, why are you persecuting me? His response at this moment really undermines the whole idea of like seeker sensitivity, the idea that you have to go and look for Jesus, find Jesus, make a decision for Jesus. Paul didn't even know who Jesus was. He was not looking for him. Instead, what you see here is absolute sovereignty. I have oftentimes said that Jesus, being the authority in heaven, has the absolute right to lay himself on your life, on your heart, on your conscience, and say, you are now mine. Well, that's exactly what happened to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said... Who are you? He didn't know who was speaking to him. He said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus 
named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. In other words, nothing was left up to chance here. Jesus was in complete control of every single one of these events. First, he came to Saul. He blinded Saul. He said to Saul, go into the city. There you'll be told what to do. Then he went to Ananias, told Ananias what street to go to, what house, who to find. He's praying right now because he's blind. Ananias realizes who Saul is and responds to God and says, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What absolutely complete sovereignty. Here's an enemy of God and all things Christ. Christ lays himself on this guy. He was not looking for Christ. And then Christ speaks to Ananias and says, he's my chosen vessel. I picked him out. You can see now why Paul, at the beginning of the book of Galatians, would argue that God had chosen him from the beginning. God knew what he was going to do with him. It's just that over the course of Saul's life, he went from being so high and mighty in Judaism and then learning that he had to let go of all that in order to gain Christ. Because Christ was not just the instigator, but the motivator, the power behind the whole relationship. Nowhere here do you find, and then Saul stood up and chose Jesus. Instead, what you find is Jesus chose Saul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. See, he's the one that did the choosing. To bear my name before the Gentiles. I have a mission for him. I have a job for him. He's going to take my name in front of kings and the sons of Israel. And oh yeah, on top of that, he's going to suffer for my name. That's why Paul, despite going through the suffering that he went through, which he's going to list for us, he went through a phenomenal amount of pushback from the Jews, from the Romans, ultimately beheaded And through all of that, he stayed true to the mission that he was given by an absolutely sovereign Lord. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias departed, and he entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. 
And he arose, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. That's the very thing he was going to Damascus to wipe out. Now he's standing up in front of the Jews, tough audience, in the synagogues, declaring that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, of course. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. And his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. That's the conversion story of the apostle Paul. He is responsible for planting the churches in Galatia. This is during a period that we still know as the apostolic period. This is the first generation of the church. Many of the apostles are still alive at this time where Paul has planted these churches and is now writing to the churches in Galatia. The apostles are still on the planet alive performing their ministerial duties. And yet, the churches of Galatia were already becoming confused. They were already being pulled away from the purity of the simple gospel of Christ. They were already, as you know from last week, they were already being told, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep some part of the law. They were already pulling away people from Christ and bringing them back to the law. Now, if that could happen that quickly at the very beginning of the church's existence, if that could happen during the apostolic period when you had people like John and James and Peter still on the planet, if it could happen then, how easily can it happen now? And it happens all the time now. There is so much confusion within the church. And oftentimes, the people who want to criticize the church start there. 
Well, there's so many denominations. There's so many different ideas. There's so many different theories. So the church doesn't know what it believes. Why should I be part of something that's in that much confusion? And they're right. The church is in a tremendous amount of confusion. But there have been people attempting to confuse it and pervert it from the very beginning. As soon as the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith, as soon as that was presented, immediately there were people coming in behind Paul saying, well, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus, yeah, but also you need to do this stuff. Or also you need to believe this stuff. I years ago said one time with the microphone on that I wanted a t-shirt that said, Jesus plus nothing. And then several people on the internet sent me t-shirts that said, Jesus plus nothing. I have several of them still at home because the essence of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. The minute you add something to Jesus and his finished work, you have diminished the gospel. Paul says you have perverted the gospel you have twisted it you have confused it and that's been happening for the last 2,000 years and the only way you're going to get unconfused is if you go back to what the word says and that's why we just keep pounding away at the word of God because that's the only hope the church in the world has is if they just stick to what the word actually says Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Now you can understand why Paul would call himself an apostle. But then knowing that the word apostolos means a sent one, he then explains that he is not sent because of any man. He is not coming to those churches. He didn't plant those churches. He's not teaching those churches because some man thought it was a good idea. It wasn't the ones in Jerusalem that sent him. He says it was Jesus Christ who sent him. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of man. So it wasn't the decision of men. It wasn't the plan of men. But through Jesus Christ and God, our Father, and he put the resurrection front and center. The resurrection of Christ is the very linchpin of all other Christianity. You take away the resurrection, you don't have biblical Christianity. And Paul constantly put the resurrection front and center. I am an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's why I went back and read that story from Acts 9 so that you could see that actually Paul, out persecuting the church, was confronted by Jesus, who was alive again, and then was sent by Jesus, who told him right from the beginning that he was a chosen vessel, who had an assignment, who was going to go preach to Israel, to kings, ultimately to Gentiles. So Paul, defending his apostleship, says Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And 
all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Usually when Paul sat down and wrote an epistle, it was to a church, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Rome. But as I showed you the last couple of weeks, Galatia is a region, it's an area, it's a province in Rome, and there are several cities and several churches in those cities. So this letter was meant to be an encyclical. It was meant to go from church to church to church. It was meant to be copied and copied so that all those churches would all know of the influence of the Judaizers that was coming their way, many of whom had already been influenced by the Judaizers, and that's why Paul is going to use some of his fiercest language in order to counteract what they're saying. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to point out quickly, Paul never confuses those two terms. He never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace because you're never going to have peace with God till you get grace from God. That's right. It has to start with God being gracious to you, then irene, then peace breaks out. <coughs> and it doesn't break out because you're the one that made peace with God. <coughs> peace breaks out between you and God because God himself, through his grace, made peace possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. That's the essential gospel right there. Jesus died, though he was personally sinless. He died as our sin sacrifice, primarily for the purpose of forgiving us, being the adequate payment for our sins, our transgressions, our trespasses, our rebellions against God. Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us out of this present evil ion, this present evil age. Now, Paul quite rightly said that the age, the period he was living in, was his present evil age. I think we would all agree that the age we're living in right now, presently, is also evil. And sometimes it's easy to look at the evil of this world and think, how did we get to this? How did we reach this point? The answer is right there. It's an evil age. And it's not surprising that a world of sinners would act like a world of sinners and legislate like a world of sinners congregate like a world of sinners and decide on their own rules and their own laws and that they would be rebellious against God. And here we are in the midst of this present evil world. How are we going to be delivered from this evil? The answer is right here. He gave himself for our sins so that he would deliver us out of this present evil age Notice again, it's all Christocentric. It's all Christ at the center. It's all Christ began it, Christ is doing it, he's going to finish it. 
You'll notice that nothing in Paul's theology here says, as long as you do your stuff. He's being very specific in saying, Christ is the one who gave himself to pay our sin penalty so that he could deliver us out of this present evil age. And all of that is according to the will of our God and our Father. So everything that Christ came here and did, he did because God the Father sent him to do that exact thing. In other words, it is the will of God from the beginning to save his people. And if you're among his people and he's saving you, he decided that from the beginning, wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, just to prove that he had a plan from the very beginning. And it was his decision to send Christ to buy sinners like us. That is a hallelujah moment right there. That's just good, good news. This is a really good way to start a letter, don't you think? I mean, this is just Paul still saying hi. It is all according to the will of our God and our Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. He's saying what I just kind of tried to... uh, say in a more circuitous route, which is Christ did all this because God sent him to do it, so God gets all the glory, so glorify him evermore. It's God's plan, therefore, honor him, worship him, glorify him. Okay, that's his introduction. Having gotten through his introduction, which is just beautiful language, glorious language, and he immediately launches... Right from there, I am astounded at you. I am amazed at you that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, in the NASB, they made the editorial decision to capitalize the word him there, implying that it is Christ. I think Paul was speaking of himself when he said, you're deserting me, I called you to the grace of God. I'm amazed that you're deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, a different euangelion, a different version of what's supposed to be good news. It's the Greek word heteros, which has moved right into the English language as hetero. If you're heterosexual, that means you like the opposite sex. Same idea. It's not just that it's a different gospel. It's the opposite gospel. It is not the gospel I came and preached to you because I came and preached to you the grace of Christ. I came and told you about the finished work of Christ, how he accomplished everything on your behalf, and now you're listening to Judaizers who are telling you that you need to do stuff, that you need to be circumcised, that you need to follow some part of the law. And Paul says, that is not the gospel. In fact, it's the opposite of the gospel. You can see why he's really adamant with this language. I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for an opposite story, an opposite gospel, which is not another. It's the Greek word alos, 
And it means not commensurate with, not the same as. He's just said it's opposite. And so he said, it's not really another gospel. It's not really another good news. Look, if I say to you, Jeff, I can guarantee you eternal salvation, but I'm going to put all the responsibility on you. Is that good news? No, because you know you. Everybody in this room knows you. And we all collectively say, well, that's not good news for Jeff. And that's what was happening in Galatia. Here, Paul had planted those churches on the grace of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And then Judaizers come down from Jerusalem and start telling them, right, but you also have to do some stuff, which effectively puts the responsibility on them. And if you know anything about yourself, you know that to whatever degree you have to live up to the standards of God, you can't do it. If I say to you, salvation exists and you can have it if you just keep the law. There's a lot of people saying that these days. There are a lot of people in a lot of pulpits saying you can be saved, heaven forever, if you just (coughs) keep the law. And usually, rather than tell you all 613 rules, they'll pick a few, they'll cherry pick a few, the ones they think they're good at, and tell you, you got to live up to those. Well, as soon as you do that, the minute you do that, Paul says, that's an opposite to the gospel. It is not another, it is not alos, it is not commensurate with the real gospel. They are twisting the gospel. It is not another, only there are some who are upsetting you, disturbing you, upsetting the peace, (coughs) twisting your minds, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there is a genuine gospel, by the way. The fact that Paul can be this adamant about the content of the gospel means that there is an actual definable gospel and that it has real genuine content and real genuine parameters. And if you step outside that content, if you step outside those parameters, it is no longer the gospel. And I can tell you right away, as soon as it adds, you do stuff, it's distorted. It's twisted. It's gone away from the gospel of the grace of Christ. And I kind of appreciate the King James rendering of it. They pervert the gospel of Christ. They undermine it in such a way that they've made it a perversion of the truth. And then they're trying to convince people that their perversion is the way to your glorification. If you add the word perversion to it, you understand how ridiculous that sounds. But it sounded that way to Paul, which is why he keeps using this kind of language. Here, let me give you another demonstration of the kind of language that I'm talking about here. Go to Philippians. Let's do this. Philippians chapter 3. This is another demonstration of the kind of language Paul uses to adamantly talk against this perversion of the gospel. Am I boring anybody yet? No. You okay? Finally, my brethren, chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Philippians. 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the katatome. Beware of the downcutters is actually the word. It's the word for cutting and the word for down or off. The King James calls them the concision. The NASB says they are the false circumcision. Paul is talking about his tribe, the Jews, the ones who, because they are descendants of Abraham, have the circumcision in their flesh. And yet they want to take that circumcision to the Gentiles who have already been saved, who have already received the Holy Spirit. And they want to add to it and say, now you need to circumcise your flesh and you need to keep the law. So they are perverting the gospel. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, the concision, the down cutters, the off cutters. And then by comparison with those Jews who are adamant about circumcising Gentiles, he says, but we, we Jewish believers, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in our flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, oh, I far more. And then he starts listing his credits. I am circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and that I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so Paul here in Philippians 3 contrasts the law and grace. And he says, if anybody could be justified by the law, look at me. I was doing it. 
I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee before the law, blameless. If anybody was going to get justification and be able to boast in their flesh, dig me. Okay, he didn't use the phrase dig me, but you get what I'm saying. He said, if anybody could do it, I could do it. He said, and yet the reality is all those things that I thought were gain as I was increasing in status among the Jews, all those things I end up counting as loss for Christ's sake. In other words, you cannot come to salvation by grace through faith and think that you're going to carry any of your personal accomplishments or fleshly ability with you in order to satisfy what Jesus has already done. And he keeps saying it. He says it to the Philippians. He says it to the Galatians. certainly says it to the Romans. This is fundamental to Pauline theology. In order to understand New Testament theology, you have to understand the contrast between grace and law. And law simply cannot save, and grace saves entirely. But in this same letter, the letter to the Galatians, Paul is going to use, and this is the only place you find it, he's going to say, you're fallen from grace. How do you fall from grace? He says, if you try to add you to it, if you try to add your flesh to it, if you are counting on your own ability to get you and keep you saved, then Christ is no help to you, and grace is no help to you. You've fallen from grace. So he's using adamant language in order to create this contrast that we have to keep in our heads. Back to Galatians, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a heteros, opposite gospel, which is not really alos, not another, not commensurate with the real thing. Only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to pervert, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel Contrary to that, which we've already preached to you, let him be anathema is the Greek word. And that's carried right over into the English language. We still have the word anathema. That normally refers to a consecrated gift, something that a person making a vow or making some promise to God, they would give that over to God for the destruction of it, for God's own glory, for God's own sake. And that's the weight that it carries in the Old Testament. It's the idea of burning and destroying unholy things for God's sake. In other words, knowing the holiness of God, knowing the goodness of God, knowing the uniqueness and singularity of God, they would destroy idols, they would destroy unclean things, they would burn them for God's glory. Burned for God's glory. That's anathema. That's what that thing is. Destroyed for the glory of God. So in the New Testament, it has that residual meaning of being given up for destruction or being accursed, which is the way it sometimes is translated. In fact, that's the way it's used in 1 Corinthians 12.3. It says, wherever, wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God 
calls Jesus anathema. They don't say he's accursed. So we understand what the word anathema means. It means to be cursed, to be destroyed for God's sake. The King James, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 16, doesn't even bother to translate it. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Maranatha. The Lord is near. So I hope you get a sense for this word, anathema, and what it means. Now, the Catholic Church has kind of watered down the idea of anathema. They pronounce anathemas against all kinds of people for all kinds of things. But the word had tremendous spiritual weight to it. Anything that was anathema was being destroyed for the glory of God. And here Paul says, those people who are perverting the gospel... Even if it looks like it's a letter from me, even if it's an angel from heaven, if anybody preaches a gospel to you contrary to that gospel of grace that I have already preached to you, let him be burned for God's glory. That's harsh language. That's not the kind of language any of us would be comfortable using. And yet Paul says, I have the authority. I'm the apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm sent to preach this message to you, and it's the only message that actually saves. Therefore, don't mess with it. Don't contort it. Don't twist it. Apostle, apostolos. If I were to send one of you as my apostolos, and I gave you a message to carry... Part of being a faithful apostle is carrying that message true to what it originally said. If I were to say, Tom, go tell Micah that I said we'll be leaving here in a half hour. And you go to him and you say, Jim says, I don't know, an hour, hour two. Did you carry my message? No. No. Well, then you're not a faithful apostle. That's Paul's argument here. To be a faithful apostle, you carry the message you were given, which is why his argument is going to be, I didn't get this from man. I got this right from Jesus Christ. And I am a faithful apostle in carrying this message of grace to you. And I am so confident and so sure that this is the right message and that this is the heavenly message and that this is the only salvation message that if anybody says anything else to you ever, burn them. Well, they're set for damnation. They're going to be accursed. And then it's almost like Paul, as he's sitting writing this, realizes that when he wrote anathema, knowing the weight of that word, that there would be somebody who would read it and go, well, he doesn't mean that. I mean, that's too harsh. Maybe it was a typo or something. He was writing on papyrus. It was a papyro. Maybe it was a, he I'm sorry. Was I in the room when that happened? That's, as I said before, verse 9, so I say again now. He's making sure you understand his point. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be anathema. For am I now seeking the favor of men? He knows people are going to read this and go, wow, Paul, could you maybe back it up a little bit? That's really harsh, Paul. And he says, look, 
I'm being this way because I'm on God's side. If I was trying to please men, I wouldn't talk this way against men. I'd be making friends. I'd be out there saying what everybody wants to hear. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? I think, my theory is, the leading cause, the leading reason that the true gospel, the biblical gospel, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, the primary reason it gets twisted and perverted in the modern church is because people want to please men. They don't want to say to people, you know, you're really bad. (laughs) You know, you're really sinful. You know, if God doesn't change you, you have no hope. I heard, I talked about it at men's group, but there's a guy, local pastor, not naming any names, and he has a new book out on the Holy Spirit. I heard it just this morning driving into the driveway where he's, he actually says, you know, sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit as an unwelcome guest. And he's like, wait, what? We what? We do what? <laughs> and then he actually says, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He'll never make you do anything you don't want to do. <laughs> he has a big church in Murfreesboro. Big outreach. I've seen him on TBN. Big don't worry, the Holy Spirit would never make you do anything you don't want to do. He better, because you don't want to come to Christ. <laughs> you don't, in your flesh, in your stony heart, in your darkened mind, you don't want to come to Christ. You don't want to change everything about your life and be a Christian, especially with the amount of persecution. Do you think Paul, knowing on the front end, That Ananias said to him, oh yeah, Jesus is going to show you what great things you're going to suffer for his name. You think Paul was like, oh yippee, yeah, sign me up. No, he understood the persecution that was part of the job. And he was not going to be a man pleaser. He was not going to go out and say what he had to say in order to avoid the persecution. Instead, he went out and said exactly what Jesus sent him to say despite the persecution because he was serving God and not serving man. And there are far too many man-pleasers in pulpits these days. Am I ranting yet? But it's the man-pleasing that is causing people to pervert the gospel in order to say to them, You know, God thinks you're a handful of aces. God thinks you're doing great. And he's pleased with you, and you're good enough, he's going to let you in. I grew up with the idea that when you got to the gate, St. Peter was going to be there with a scale, and he was going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if your good deeds slightly outweighed your bad deeds, you're into heaven forever. But if your bad deeds slightly outweigh your good deeds... See, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And so this was the kind of stuff I believed growing up. So you can imagine what a great relief it was to hear salvation by grace through faith where Jesus did absolutely all of it and I didn't have to do any of it. Oh, hooray! I went with hooray, you went with amen. Am I now seeking the favor of men or the favor of God? Or am I striving to please men 
Because if I were still trying to please men, I could not be the slave of Christ. Let's apply that to everything we just said. All the man-pleasers who are out there trying to build big budgets and big edifices to themselves so that they can have bigger buildings and bigger ministries and satellites and airplanes and everything else. They're trying so hard to be man-pleasers by telling human beings that they're capable and that God is going to save them on the basis of their good works. And Paul here says, if I were a man-pleaser, I cannot be, cannot be the slave of Jesus Christ. Of course not, because you have to pervert the gospel. For I will have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preach to you, that gospel which was preached by me, is not according to man. And that's why human beings, after the flesh, don't like it. That's why they don't agree with it. Because it's not a man-pleasing gospel. It's the gospel of the glory of God, the grace of God, your depravity, your inability, all the things that the Bible says you cannot do. You cannot come to Christ. You cannot stop the warfare between your flesh and your spirit. You cannot accomplish by the law actual righteousness, and you cannot justify yourself. People don't want to hear that. There are people on the Internet even now going, no, (laughs) I'm not going to listen to that anymore. This guy's pulling the rug out from under my confidence, and I like my self-confidence. I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel, which was preached by me, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. I received it through an apocalypsis, through a revelation right from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Jerusalem, in Judaism. That's why we went back and read that, that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee, You heard about my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And when he who had set me apart Even from my mother's womb, when he called me through his grace, and when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, then I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia And I returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with the apostles. That's where we'll pick up next week. So that's how Paul launches into his letter. He starts with, I'm astounded. I came and told you the best news I've ever told you. 
I don't mean to personalize this, and yet I'm going to. Um, I've been at this here at GCA 22 years. Altogether, it's somewhere in the 30s of my life that I have devoted to learning this gospel and telling people about it. And through that period of time, I've been at this long enough that I have looked people in the eye and said to them, this is the truth. This is the biblical truth. It's what the Bible says. I show it to them right in the Bible. This is how salvation works. This is how Christ gets all the glory. Then they wander off. And then I hear that they're in some legalistic thing. We had one that ran off to Tony Robbins. I mean, figure that one. And it just astounds me. I understand Paul saying, I'm amazed. I came and told you the best news you're ever going to hear in your silly little life. And because somebody else came along and told you something else, you're persuaded by it. What are you thinking? So, my admonition to you this morning is stick with what the Word says. Stick with what the Bible says. Don't worry about all these traditions of men and all these man-made religions. Of course human beings would want you to join them in their misery. Of course human beings would want to lord some power over you. And the best way to do that is to get you bending to a bunch of rules. You don't need any of that. You have Christ Jesus. You have the finished work, the fully satisfactory sacrifice on your behalf. You have the grace of God who chose you before the foundation of the world. You don't need all the silliness that pervades the church these days. What you need is the true gospel. Don't pervert it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.